morning. <clears throat> I've been under the weather the past few days, so my voice is uh, struggling a little bit this morning. So I'll probably uh, croak and sound like I'm going through puberty again. We'll just suffer through it. <clears throat> we'll suffer through it together. Uh, but if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings chapter 7. We uh, kicked off a new series last week that we're calling Ordinary People. We're going through this reality that looking at this reality that God uses ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. And uh, that's really something you see through so many stories in the scriptures, all throughout the story arc uh, of the scriptures of the, of the Bible. You see God using unlikely people, people who don't have titles, people who don't have uh, positions of influence, and he uses some who do. But as the Apostle Paul told the early church, he said, not many of you, not many of you had a lot of power or prestige or wealth or uh, credit to your name, and yet Jesus chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, to move the gospel forward. And so we're looking at that reality, and last week we looked at Nehemiah chapter 3, and we talked about uh, the building of, the rebuilding of the city wall of Jerusalem after it had been broken down, and Nehemiah leading the people back uh, to work on that together and how he calls, he sends the call out to say, hey, let's, let's rebuild the wall. And you see people from the top of society to the bottom of society coming together to work together. And we saw also that it wasn't really about people's skill sets or necessarily their giftings as much as it was, this is the work that needs to be done. And so let's step in and do it. And we saw people from the top of society to the bottom of society, the city rulers, the district rulers, all the way to folks who we don't even know their names, the perfumers, the goldsmiths, they all took a step and repaired uh, the wall, whether it necessarily fit their gifting or not. And so one of the things we said last week is this series in some ways is about personal ministry, our core value of personal ministry, that we say we are servants that we use our time and our talents and our treasures for the sake of the kingdom. And our goal as a church, my hope for you as your, as your pastor is that you're using the giftings that God has given you here on a Sunday throughout the week from Monday to Saturday that you're seeing how you are uniquely gifted, how the Holy Spirit has gifted you and that you can use those for the building up of the body and also for reaching people who don't know and love Jesus to help us accomplish the mission that God has given us to make disciples of all nations. But we also said, and a particular challenge that we're putting out uh, this series is, hey, on a Sunday morning, there's just like the, there was work that needed to be done in Nehemiah 3, there's work that has to be done here. As we gather, it requires a ton of people, us stepping forward, whether it necessarily always fits our giftings or not, people stepping forward to say, hey, I'm willing to do the work that needs to be done so that we can gather and worship Christ and sit under his word and teach the next generation and so on and so forth. And so we threw some numbers up to you last week. I want to show you those numbers uh, again, some updated numbers here. So last week that was 76, right? When we talked about life teams, all of our teams that serve on a Sunday morning, our connections team and our LifePoint kids team and our worship team and production team and all these different areas, all these teams that come together to serve uh, Sunday morning and outside of Sunday morning. We said, look, the, the challenge, the step I'm asking uh, you to take is if you call LifePoint your home, but you're not yet on a team. Team. Just like we uh, 
challenge and encourage you to get into a life group. We want to challenge and encourage you to step onto a life team, to serve and to give of your time for the sake of the body. So there were 50 people who responded last Sunday and, and 25 of those have already sort of taken a step to get into, uh, into the pipeline to, to lead and to serve and to be trained. By the way, if you took a step last week and you did not get an email, that's a, that's a mistake or spam folder or whatever that may be. So please reach out to us because uh, we've talked to all of our staff about making sure we were in contact with everybody who took a step last week. But this is where the number stands as of today. I love by the end of this series, at the end of October, to see that as close to zero as possible. So um, you can go through the next couple of slides there. You can see again uh, some of our different life teams, some of the numbers that need, uh, the number of people they need in each of those life teams to step forward and to serve. And so once again, at the end of our time today out in the lobby, there'll be people from every life team out there to meet you. And we'll try to end a few minutes early on purpose just so that you have a time if, again, the challenge is if you call LifePoint home. And you say, hey, I, this is my church. This is my church family. Then as we do mission together, I'm asking you to take a step. And when you leave today, to go find one of those folks, meet them, uh, give them your name, your info, so that you can take a step and they can reach out to you and say, hey, here's what we do. Here's how we serve. And here's how you can take a step. Now, 2 Kings 7 let me give you the background of what's happening here, right? As we see these ordinary people being used by God to accomplish his extraordinary purposes, it's the mid-800s BC. It's the mid-800s BC, and there's a, the relationship between the king and the prophet Elisha. Some of us may know Elijah and then Elisha. It's now the time of Elisha, and he has served faithfully. He has actually, God has used him once already to save the people of Israel. The people of Israel have been split into two kingdoms now, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And in the northern kingdom of Israel, Elisha has warned the people, he has spoken to the king, he has saved, God's used him to save them from the Syrians once already, but now they're besieged again by the Syrian army that is camped out and is come around the city of Samaria, the capital there in the northern kingdom of Israel, and things are really terrible. Um, in fact, I don't know that I can exaggerate, like it's, it's awful. People are resorting to cannibalism within the city because of how bad the inflation is. Right now we're struggling, right, with some inflation we've not seen for a few decades. Theirs is off the charts. In fact, in one point in passage, it talks about what a donkey's head was selling for. A donkey's head, uh, the least edible part of the animal, I mean, like the least valuable part of the animal, it was selling for these exorbitant prices. Stuff that was almost valueless was so overpriced, it was ridiculous. And so the people are crying out to the king, and the king's response is that he actually blames the Lord, and, and he blames Elisha, the prophet. He says, this Lord, this misery is from the Lord. And so what he does is he sends his servant and he actually comes himself afterwards to go kill the prophet Elisha because instead of looking at his own disobedience and the way he has turned the people away from trusting the Lord as his father did, he doesn't in any way, shape or form repent or humble himself. He just blames God and he blames Elisha and he sends his messenger, his captain to go kill him. And that's where we pick up in 2 Kings 7 verse 1. But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow, about this time, a seah of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. 
what that means is it, those prices are not quite back down to normal levels, but about twice the normal level. So it's this drastic reduction. He says, tomorrow, this amount of flour, this amount, it's going to sell for prices that seem ridiculous, right? There's no way that could possibly happen. And in fact, the captain who's been sent to kill him, when he hears this, this is what he says. Verse two, then the captain on whose hand the king leans said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? In other words, he says, that's ridiculous. That's not possible. Do you not understand what's happening economically right now? And so he responds with cynicism and sarcasm and unbelief. He says, even if God were to open up the storehouses of heaven, what you've just said will not come to pass. And Elisha the prophet said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. You get to see it, but you won't get to experience the joy of it. Verse 3 says, Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. Lepers were men or women who uh, suffered from various skin diseases, many of them called at that point in time leprosy, and therefore they could not be with the people. They were separated, so they're outside of the city gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we'll die there. If we sit here, we die also. So come now, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. It's a very cold but true logic. They say, look, we're going to die here. We're going to die if we go in the city and we might die if we go to the Syrians, but that's our best chance for life. So we might as well go there. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no, way, no one there. <clears throat> Listen to what happened here, the way the Lord intervenes. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. They hear these sounds and they assume that the king has used some alliances and that now these marauding bands are coming right for their camp. And so thinking that, they panic. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. When these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank. They carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. So they arrive at this camp and they do what many of us would probably do. They throw an absolute party, right? They're like, man, no one's here and there's all this stuff and we haven't eaten in a long time. Like, so they eat, they drink, they hide treasure, and then they do it all over again. And then the pivotal moment comes. The pivotal moment for these men and for the story as a whole. Verse nine, and then they said to one another, we are not doing right. What we're doing is not right. This is the day of good news. And if we're silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. They go and they tell the king, the king, <clears throat> because he has become cynical and hardened, he, he doesn't believe them. And so some of his men uh, say, well, let's at least go check it out. So they ride out. They find it just as the lepers told them. They follow the camp of the Syrians. They follow the fleeing Syrians, see all their stuff strewn everywhere. And they 
realize, man, this really is, it's miraculous. They have fled, they thought an army was coming for them, so they go back and they tell the people of Israel. And in verse 16, it picks up again and says, then the people went out and they plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. They come out to the camp and they find an enormous camp abandoned by the army. And with all of the supplies there, they suddenly have this influx of goods into the economy. And so they begin selling it just as Elisha says they, said they would. And it says, now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned. This is the same man that had told Elisha, there's no possible way to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. It's a fulfillment of Elisha's words to the man that he saw it, but he did not get to experience it, that he wouldn't eat of it. Now, we're going to keep things simple this morning. We're going to look at a few things about the lepers and lessons from their life, a couple of things about the Lord and our response to him. Let's look at the lepers first. A couple of things here. One, they did something. I think they should at least be credited for that rather than sitting at the gate and saying, well, we're going to die. We might as well sit here and just wait for our fate. Instead, they say, let's put ourselves in the best position for life. And they go to the camp of the Syrians. But I think far more importantly is what they did when they got there. First, they drink, they eat, they plunder it, they bury treasure, they have a party. But then two things happen. They were willing to admit they were wrong and they were willing to make it right. They were willing to admit they were wrong and they were willing to go literally the extra mile to make it right. In other words, they repented. They repented. If you're taking notes, that's the first thing I would write down and I might write down after it the definition of repentance. I think sometimes we get caught thinking that repentance is just feeling bad about something you've done. That's not repentance, that's part of repentance. Genuine repentance is probably motivated by men. What, I, what we're doing is wrong. But repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of heart that leads to a change of action. It's not just confessing all what we've done is wrong and then sort of wallowing in that or saying, if I feel bad enough for long enough, that'll make it okay. But rather it's a willingness to say, hey, what we're doing is wrong. We need to stop doing that and we need to start doing what is right. And because they were willing to do this, right, in Christ-likeness, Right? Christ said, I came not to serve, not to be served, but rather to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. They have this moment where they say, we can't keep this to ourselves. We need to go love our neighbors as ourselves. And because they're willing to repent and to admit that what they did was wrong and to go and make it right, they put themselves in a position to be used by and of the Lord. I want to be clear about something, right? God doesn't need us to move his plans forward. All right, if the lepers were disobedient, I think God would have just done it another way. But I think it's instructive for your life and mine. We don't want to be, we don't want to see God's activity in spite of ourselves or see God's activity in spite of our disobedience where we're found opposing the Lord. We want to be used by God and of God in a way in which we can set ourselves up for that in a sense is to say, Lord, I want to be walking and align my life with your will. When I realize I'm doing something wrong, I confess that to the Lord, repent of it, do what's right and say, Lord, I don't get to dictate to you what you're going to do, but I want to align my life with your will. As we sang earlier, right, I want to I be obedient to the Lord, to build my life on the rock that is Christ, not just hear the word, but do it. 
And by these lepers repenting, doing what is right, they're then used by the Lord for the salvation of their people. Secondly, they not only repent, but they shared the good news. Verse 9, I think, is wonderful. It says, they said to one another, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news. And if we're silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. They say, how can we experience this kind of salvation and not share that with our brothers and sisters? If that doesn't scream out to you and me evangelism, I don't know what else will. Evangelism, right, means it's the good news, to go and share the good news. And when we think about the process, I was actually, we were talking about this as a life group this week. When we think about sharing the good news far too often, I'm guilty of it, I imagine you are as well, that sometimes we think about a box to check. We think about something that we should do, I know I'm supposed to do this, or we don't think about it at all. But the reality is, think of what happened here. They received, they experienced something joyful. It's the good news. How can we keep it to ourselves, they say. And the same should be true for you and for me. Think about when you experience something good, do you not want to share it with others? You go to a restaurant for the first time and it's a wonderful experience. And what do you do following that? I mean, if you're selfish, right? You're like, I'm not telling anybody. It's in my spot, right? But... But better is we say, what, I'm going to go share this, friends, family, hop on social media, you got to check this place out. It's amazing. You watch the latest highlight reel in sports, you see an amazing play, and what do you do? You get to your buddies, man, did you see this? When we experience something good, when we see something good, when we taste something good, Our response then is we want to share that with others. We want to include them in that if we're not acting selfishly and trying to guard it to ourselves. Should it not be the same in our relationship with Christ? When we experience the goodness of knowing Jesus, of having our sins forgiven, of walking with him, being washed clean, a natural response out of that should be, but how can I keep this to myself? Why would I not want this for my neighbor? Why would I want, not want this for my family member? Why would I not want this for my classmate or my teammate? The person that I see and they're, they're trying and they keep spinning their wheels and they don't, they don't have Christ. They don't have a relationship with him. Oh Lord, would you use me? Would it not be wrong to have the good news and to not share it? And so it's not motivated by guilt or drudgery or box checking, but motivated by joy joy and mission for the glory of God. And I think we have to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves, hey, if I feel no, if I feel no desire to share Christ with others, and I understand there, there are moments and there are times where maybe you're in a difficult season, a backsliding season, or there are just moments where you're like, I want to, but I'm not sure how. But if you're saying, I just don't really have that desire to share him with anyone else, then I think you need to ask a deeper question. Have you really experienced his goodness? Have you truly experienced relationship with him? Because when you experience the forgiveness and the joy of knowing Jesus, you want that for others. Go to the Lord today. Father, have I experienced truly your goodness? Moving on from the lepers, the next thing we see is that the security of God's people is found in God. 
The security, the joy, the health, you could use a lot of words there in the place of security. It's found in God. One commentator put it this way, that this whole story is yet another example of God demonstrating to Israel and her king and to the world watching that Israel's national security ultimately was grounded in the Lord, not in military forces or strategies. Do you know when you read 1 Kings and 2 Kings, these two books, one of the overarching themes of both books is covenant, that God had made a covenant relationship, a promise to his people. He said, I will be your God. If you remember, right, from Exodus and Deuteronomy, and God lays out the Ten Commandments to them, but the first thing he says is, I will be your God. Behold, I'm Yahweh, I'm your God, and I will take care of you. No other gods before me. Why? Because I'm, he says, I'm your God. And so First and Second Kings is about this covenant relationship and how the people of God consistently walk away from the Lord. And yet the Lord desires that covenant relationship with them. And as we'll talk about here in a moment, continues to be faithful to them, continues to show them mercy and to tell them, look, you're looking, the, the kings and the people of Israel look for it in every other place. They turn away from God repeatedly. They look to military strategies, to alliances, to other kingdoms, to other gods, and pretty much every other means outside of the Lord himself for their safety and their security. And repeatedly, the prophets come to them and say, basically, what are you doing? The Lord is calling you back, people. He's calling you back to the Lord. Do you not see that your joy and your security and your health, it's found in him. You have a God who loves you. Come back to him. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we trust in what? The name of the Lord, our God. You think about what are the lessons for the church in this? What are the lessons for you and me? Strategies, I think the lesson is this, strategies are good and fine. Facilities are helpful in facilitating our mission as we try to reach our city and we try to make disciples and we try to teach the next generation and we try to be firm and we try to stay strong to the Lord, facilities can be helpful in that. Strategies are good, but the day that we stop looking ultimately to the Lord and to his spirit for our hope, for our overall health as a church and for the power to make disciples is the day that we're in serious trouble. The day we stop appealing to him and looking to him and saying, God, you are the one. You are the one who sent the horses and the chariots. You're the one who created all these things. And it's you by your Holy Spirit that live in us and help us live out your mission. The day we stop trusting in him as our ultimate hope is the day we're in serious trouble. I think I mentioned to you, the, uh, Paul and Mary and he and I were challenged with this recently on a personal level even. As we moved up into Marion and we sent right, 75 to 100 folks from our congregation here and launched in Marion. And that launch is, many, many things about it have been great. And the building facility side of it has been very frustrating. Very, very, we thought we were going to be in in April. <clears throat> what month is it again, right? Here we are, October, and we're still going, like, Lord, when? And we've had some encouraging news. We've had, we feel like the end is near and that we're excited about that. But there came a moment months into the process where Paul and I were talking and I could feel my heart. I think he could feel his heart going, man, if we can just open the facility. And we said, whoa, whoa, whoa. If we're dependent upon facilities to make disciples, then maybe we shouldn't be going up here in the first place. 
And so we began to pray, Lord, will you help us to see your activity even before we open a facility? We're meeting in a temporary space. It's not ideal. But Lord, will you begin to move? Because we have to, some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God has to be more than something we write in cursive on the walls of our home or on a coffee mug. It's got to be something that's written on the tablet of our heart that we live out in those moments where we're saying, man, what am I trusting in? My finances, my bank account, my family, and many of those things are good things. My job, my career, the home that I've built for myself or bought for myself, or do we trust in the name of the Lord our God? Do we trust him in the midst of the storm? Our security is found in him and in him alone. Next thing is this. I told you last week that God is incredibly faithful. This week, I'll say it differently. God is ridiculously merciful. (laughs) Ridiculously merciful. And you could maybe write in there, merciful slash patient. God continues to love his people, even when his people don't love him back. And praise him for it. You think about what's happening in this moment here. I told you it's the mid-800s B.C., So David, the king, right, led his people, not perfectly, but well. He reigned around 1000 BC, about 150 years before this. Died, we think, around 970 BC. His son Solomon takes over after him. You could argue that the people stayed true to the Lord, at least during the early part of Solomon's reign, but not throughout it. And then after Solomon's reign, it's pretty much downhill from there. And king after king, it's, it's nearly at this point in time, we're a hundred years into the people of God turning away from the Lord. One of the most depressing things about reading First and Second Kings, if you've ever read it, you'll understand what I'm saying, is trying to find a good king. It's just, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord's, and then his son reigned, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and then his son took over after him, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and then you're like, you get one, he's like, and he did what was good, and you're like, Yes! And then you go right back to four or five in a row that lead the people away. And they build altars to other gods. And they worship on the high places and they look to other gods of the people around them to say, hey, can you help us? And all the time, the Lord's like, I am the Lord your God. I brought you here. I gave you this land. I promised you all. I promised you I would take care of you. And yet generation goes by after generation and God continues in the midst of it to love them, to shepherd them, even though he disciplines them, to show covenant faithfulness to them, to rescue them. There's a concept in theology called long-suffering, that God is long-suffering that he just suffers long alongside his people as he continues to send them prophet after prophet after prophet. Think about it for you and I. You and I, we have people in our lives that they make the same mistake a few times and we get so frustrated with them, do we not? How can you not see this? Day after, year after, this has been this way for years. And here the Lord is saying, yeah, it's been this way for generations. And yet generation, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, the God of covenant continues to show steadfast love to his wayward people. It's one of the most stunning, shocking, and beautiful things about the history of God and his people is just how often we turn from him and yet how often he shows us mercy, patience, and unending love. 
And yet, while we celebrate that and we say, oh, praise God, where would I be? (laughs) Where would I be without the Lord? Remember my father saying that to me when I was a young young man, teenager, just hearing him say, okay, I don't know where I'd be without the Lord. And I could see it in his face and hear it in his voice that he meant it. Where would we be without the mercy of the Lord? And at the same time, let's not forget that our response to his mercy matters. It's the final thing. Our response to his mercy matters. Paul tells us in the New Testament, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that God's kindness, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. We're not to take his kindness and his mercy and just say, we just take it for granted. I'll keep doing my thing because I know God's going to keep being merciful. His mercy is meant to lead us to say, Lord, I want to align my life with your will. The people who experience life in this passage and are used by the Lord are the lepers who humbled themselves in repentance and faith and then were obedient. The person who experienced death in this passage was the messenger of the king who, when faced with God's promise, mocks and is cynical and responds in unbelief. Think about what happened there. God, through Elisha, makes an incredible promise. He says, tomorrow... Within 24 hours, there'll be food. It'll be at this price. The messenger hears it, right? You can almost hear the economists in the messenger's ears, right? That's not possible. Takes longer for the Fed to get inflation under control than that, right? They got to do some interest rate hikes and eventually things will start to slow down, but it takes longer than 24 hours. You're not going to stop hyperinflation in 24 hours. There's no possible way. It's not unreasonable, It's not illogical, except it is in the sense that he is standing before the prophet of God who has spoken for God repeatedly, and the prophet's looking at him saying, I understand the circumstances, but this is what God has said. Will you trust him or not? And the messenger's response is one of sarcasm and cynicism and unbelief. And he dies because of it. And that's a theme throughout the scriptures. Where is our heart? When the Lord speaks, what is our response? Can I ask you this morning to do a little bit of a heart check for yourself? What is your heart attitude and response to the promises of God? What is your heart attitude and response to the promises of God? And listen, doubt is normal. That happens for all of us. Seasons of difficulty are normal. Trials, moments where we fail, I've failed, I've shared that with you, you've failed. I'm not talking about perfection, I'm talking about what is the overarching arc and trajectory of your life. Is it when you read the word of God, as you spend time in prayer, as others around you share what God is doing, is that marked by increasing faith and the willingness to say, God, I believe, I trust you? Or is your heart marked by cynicism and sarcasm and unbelief? And listen, we live in an age where cynicism, it is so easy, is it not? It's so easy to become cynical. It's so easy to become sarcastic. It's so easy to give in to unbelief and just say, I don't believe any of this. It's always easier to tear things down than it is to build them. But if your heart is marked by cynicism and sarcasm and unbelief, this morning I would call you to repentance, to say, Lord, forgive me. And I would remind you of this. We have an enemy. And the enemy of your soul 
this morning would love for you to fix your eyes on the brokenness of the world around you and to lose sight of Christ. The enemy of your soul would love for you to fix your eyes on your circumstances and on the brokenness that we all see around us and to become jaded and hard-hearted and cynical and unbelieving. But praise God, while we have an enemy of our soul, we have a savior of our soul who is greater than that enemy and that enemy is defeated because Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame, and he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so we fix our eyes on him. Fix your eyes, not on your circumstances, but on your Savior, and ask him if this is where you are this morning, Lord, will you resurrect my hope? Will you resurrect belief in me? God, help my unbelief. I've become hard. I've become jaded, and I've become cynical. And Jesus, I need you to change me from the inside out. You keep your eyes fixed on him, not on the circumstances around you. He's a good God and you can trust him. Ask him for help this morning. Let me close with this. Like so many stories in the Old Testament, this story is a microcosm of the entire gospel. It's a microcosm of the whole story of scripture. You say, how? In this story, the circumstances are bleak because of the consequences of sin. God makes a seemingly ridiculous promise. We see him working on that promise through some of the most unlikely circumstances and people, and yet through it, in the end, he fulfills that promise. What is the gospel? What is the whole story of the Bible? It's this, that the situation seemed bleak. We once had perfect fellowship with the Father in the garden, but we were separated and we suffer the consequences of sin. In response, God makes a seemingly ridiculous promise that one day someone born of a woman would come and she, he would crush the head of the serpent and he would make all things right and bring us back into relationship with the Father. And what do we see? That ridiculous promise is accomplished through, through some of the most unlikely people and crazy means. You see God choosing Abraham, a man in the wilderness, with no apparent reason for doing so, but he says, I'm choosing you, and I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. He then chooses Moses, a man who had made a terrible mistake. He chooses the people of Israel who whine and complain their way through the wilderness. And you're like, God, why? He continues to show his faithfulness. He then chooses David, a very imperfect king, and promises him a son on the throne forever. And then he sends his own son, not in the way we would think, not as an emperor or as a king in an earthly sense, but as a helpless baby. Jesus comes, the son of God comes in the form of a man and then goes to the cross. And through that seeming tragedy accomplishes the ultimate victory. The circumstances were bleak because of our sin. God makes a ridiculous promise. Through the craziest of means, God fulfills that promise because then Jesus, in achieving our forgiveness and our salvation, he's raised to the right hand of the Father. He promises to return. And where does the Bible end? It ends with the return of Christ and the coming of the new kingdom and back in Revelation. And you know, it actually ends, it ends back in the garden, in the city of God where the tree of life is there and a river flowing down, back in the garden, back in full and right relationship with God. The story in a microcosmic type way points us to the overall story of scripture. 
Here's where we were. Here's where we fell because of sin. Here's what Jesus did about it. And here's where we're headed. Back in right relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The one who sent his own son for you and for me. The question is, what will your response to that be? Our response to the faithfulness of God matters. God is good. He's just, he's merciful, he's loving, he's kind, and he is faithful, long-suffering. But his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And so my hope is that for all of us, our response to the story of the scriptures, of what God has done on our behalf through his son Jesus and what one day he will do, that our response will not be cynicism, jadedness, and unbelief, but repentance and faith and obedience. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we look in the story of the Old Testament and we see people who repeatedly turn from you. And God, it's so easy for us to look at them and say, you fools, what are you doing? And God, yet when we're honest with ourselves, we look at our own lives and we see that same sinful tendency. Prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. And prone to leave the God we love. Lord, for those of us who just need encouragement this morning, will you do that? Will you encourage our hearts? God, for those of us who feel like the lepers, outcasts, outside the city, outside community, isolated, will you remind us, God, that you can take the humblest of us and you exalt and you use us for your good purposes. Every single one of us can be used by you for the good, Father, of this church and of your kingdom. Father, for those of us who have never experienced a relationship with Christ, who've never experienced your goodness, Lord, I pray this morning would be the morning. Right now would be the moment where they repent of sin. They say along with the lepers, what we're doing is not right. I have to turn this morning, trust Jesus with my life and respond in faith and obedience to him. I wanna give you a moment just to pray and respond to the Lord, hear from him. Take some time now. Father, we love you and we thank you for your mercy.
and your patience with us. Let your kindness lead us to repentance. And God, we've got two and a half months left in this year. We ask for your blessing. We ask for your blessing on us as a people. May we be then a blessing to those around us, to this city, this community, to central Ohio, to our state, our nation, and to the world. God, will you use us to share the good news, not to keep it to ourselves, but to share it with those around us. Father, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name. We humbly but expectantly ask, amen and amen.